This is the Edge of Innovation, Hacking the Future of Business. I'm your host, Paul Parisi. And I'm Jacob Young. On the Edge of Innovation, we talk about the intersection between technology and business, what's going on in technology, and what's possible for business. Paul, one of the things that many people might not know about you is that you are very fascinated and passionate about fonts and typography. It's maybe something that people don't think about a lot, but the words that they read are in a specific font, regardless of where they're reading them. Even if they're graffiti on the wall, there's a font chosen for that. Talk us through what exactly typography is, why you're passionate about it, and then just fill us in on why it's so fascinating. Well, okay, I think we need to go back in time a little bit, back before the Mac, you know, back into the ancient of days. Are we talking like Gutenberg days? No, not that far back. Okay. Gutenberg was a very important guy. So back in the early 80s, uh, late 70s, I grew up in a home where my dad was a draftsman. So okay. We had somewhat an appreciation of drawing. And mm-hmm. like that. And I, you know, I took in high school, I took some graphic arts classes, and that was cool. You know, and you'd have people doodling on notebooks and stuff, and I would always doodle letters and things like that. And never really thought much about it. As the computer revolution started to happen in, in the mid 80s, all of a sudden, I mean, you have to understand, at that time, when you typed something, you had the font that was in your typewriter. It wasn't something you right. thought about. Certainly, the, the normal, common man didn't think about it. They weren't thinking about, how, what is the you know, look of this, or what is the feel of this? But there were a whole group of people called graphic designers who did that every day. Mm-hmm. You know, And it was a very thriving community that thought about what colors work, all these design things that happened. And, you know, you can see that when going looking at old magazines or old designs. At the time the Mac came out, it produced some tools that all of a sudden we could change the font of things. Right. That was a new notion for most people. They didn't have that liberty. And, and honestly, you know, graphic designer before that used what are called dry transfer letters. It's a piece of plastic that's transparent and has whatever color, usually black, uh, type. So you'd have a row of A's, a row okay. of B's, or right. C's, and lowercase and uppercase. And you would draw a line, and you would put that piece of paper, that piece of plastic on top of it, align the baseline, and burnish it with a little round nodule at the end of the pen, like, mm-hmm. onto the paper or design you were working on. And then you'd go and you'd slide over the, the you know, if you were saying I was going to, put the word type, T-Y-P-E, I'd find the T and I'd burnish that one on, I'd go find the Y and then burnish that one on, etc. Right. And it was tedious and it was a lot of work. Sure. And that's all we had. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what it was. So now all of a sudden, you know, you could sit down at this Macintosh thing and, you know, it was, it was weird because the Macintosh had a very small screen mm-hmm. and it wasn't even big enough to really visualize a piece of paper on. And some people say that, you know, the WYSIWYG of the Mac was what was really cool. And it was a, a takeoff on the Xerox Star system. Mm-hmm. It had a big screen right. that was visual. What you see is pretty much what you got. Right. And so these technologies were brought into normal people's lives or purview, and they could now see something on there. But the real big thing that made the difference wasn't the Macintosh. It was the laser writer. Okay. Steve Jobs wanted to create a laser printer that could print the things that were on his screen. Right. That was difficult 
And he identified at the time a company called Adobe Systems that had invented this thing called PostScript, mm -hmm. which was a way to render typography or fonts or uh, shapes in a laser printer. Right. Canon had developed a laser printer, an engine, basically a mechanized unit that took a laser right. and reflected it using a mirror across a, a photosensitive drum. Mm -hmm. And by turning that laser on and off, it happened to do it. At 300 dots per inch. Okay. So 300 samples per inch, horizontally and vertically. And if you think about it, if I ask you to move a piece of paper one three hundredths of an inch, mm -hmm. stop, wait until the laser comes back, and then move it another three hundredths of an inch, you're gonna you're gonna say, "Gee, that's pretty hard." Yeah. That was that was really hard. So mm -hmm. they had to have some really incredibly precise timing and incredibly precise gears and mechanisms so that it could, once it started, continue going through that. Right. So Steve said, you know, how are we going to get this image on the screen to be an image on a printer? Okay. And, you know, there's dot matrix printers that had very low resolution, you know, mm -hmm. maybe 72 DPI or in that range. Right. You could see the dots with your human eye. Whereas a laser printer, you could begin to imagine you didn't see the dots. Okay. And it was revolutionary. Right. Up until that point, typesetting was done with either cathode ray tubes, projecting things onto a film, that oh, film wow. being developed with a developer, or it was done with eventually lasers as well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that was how typesetting was done. Right. And it was complicated, and it mm -hmm. took a lot. So the laser printer, you know, again, Canon built the laser printer. It could make marks on a piece of paper through this laser system of hitting a drum and picking up the toner and then transferring that toner to the piece of paper and then fusing it and melting it into the piece of paper. That was a huge thing. So HP also used the Canon laser printer. And they came out with the HP LaserJet 1, actually called the HP LaserJet, and it had fonts like Prestige Elite. Basically, mm -hmm. it was just like a typewriter. Okay. It had those fonts built in. Mm -hmm. And... You would have all these business people buying them to basically emulate their typewriters. Okay. And so they actually, in the laser printer, would have a cartridge that had a bitmap layout of the font. Okay. So it would be like you taking a screen door and filling in the dots uh -huh. so that it looked like the letter A. And uh -huh. they would store that in memory. And for the different fonts you'd want, mm -hmm. you'd buy a different cartridge. Okay. So, you know, at the time, you might have a uh, one of the big uh, fonts was Orator. Okay. It was it was just a very it was a mono spaced font and uh, etc. And there were IBM had a whole bunch of fonts and their Selectric typewriters. So the laser printer emulated basically a typewriter. Okay. And what the marrying of PostScript was is that it did it differently. It didn't store fonts as bitmaps. It stored them as outlines. Okay. Mathematical representations. Mm-hmm. So now I could do some cool things with that. I could scale that font. Sure. So I could make the letter A, which you got to remember, these are tools that are being put into people's hands. They used to have to go to a piece of plastic and burnish off the letter mm -hmm. A. Right. Now, if they said, gee, I don't want an A that's four inches tall, does the company, Letraset was the company that made these transfer things, do they even make one that's four inches tall? Right. So I might have to go to the photography guys, have them take a picture of it, and then 
blow it up and then cut that out mm-hmm. and put it on the piece of paper. Right. It's very tedious to be yeah, able yeah. to use these different things. So the Macintosh married all of these things together. Postscript right. was key to its success. So what it did is it took the bitmap image, or it actually took the postscript mm-hmm. and rendered it on the screen. Mm-hmm. And then you could push a button and it would render it on the printer, which was a postscript interpreter. And so all of a sudden, we, people who were creative, mm-hmm. had tools that they had never imagined before. Right. It, just, it was completely revolutionary. Right. You, you had a bunch of people who weren't conditioned to think graphically. Mm-hmm. They consumed things in the marketplace, but they weren't thinking about, oh, what font is that or what font is that? Right. In the early days, you know, I think there were like eight original fonts and LaserWriter, mm-hmm. Roman, Helvetica, Palatino, I think, was there, Chancery, Zap, Dingbats. Wow. Um, I can't believe you remember these. Yeah. Comic Sans, our no, favorite Comic font. Sans was not there. No, I mean, we could we could we could break into a rant on Comic Sans well, should you want. No, I don't. I, I have a different opinion of Comic Sans. I mean, it's it's an illustration of tools. Sure. Know? So you know, people choose that. Yep. More more offensive to me is people using Zap Chancery. Uh huh. And using it in all caps. Okay. Because it's never it wasn't intended to do that. It's right. You know, initial cap. And then all lowercase. Right. And and the second thing that bothers me a lot is people using Times Roman. Uh-huh. I just, it is so overused. People who use it don't realize what they're doing. They're crying against humanity that they committed. Is Times Roman the standard font for, like, all email? Uh, not necessarily. Okay. Because I, I'm just thinking that potentially we're offending 90% of our listeners. Well, that's fine. Yeah. Well, I said to you earlier that when I get emails in Comic Sans or Papyrus, I immediately judge the person. That's true. That's legitimate, reasonable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, you know, what's interesting is Times Roman derives itself from the London Times. It was the font that they commissioned to have created for them. And if you look at things set in Times Roman properly, Mm -hmm. it is beautiful. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember looking at books that are set in Times Roman or some derivation of that. It is very aesthetically pleasing. Now, the reason one might look at that like me maybe a font Nazi, is when you look at it, the spacing between the letters, how they naturally set, those are what are called metrics. Mm -hmm. Different fonts have different qualities of metrics. Okay. And the quality of metrics for Times Roman has been pretty bad. Okay. Uh, And that's one of the things is, you know, when you did typesetting, it was a group of professionals who used very professional tools to make sure that the letters were spaced properly so that mm-hmm. your eye would glide. Over right. And it would be it would be beautiful. Mm-hmm. So well, anyway, so let's go back to the 1980s. Yes, yes. Time frame, and I was, you know, fascinated with graphic design. I was, it was the greatest time to be alive because all of a sudden we had tools to not have to do it. You know, it, it would be like did, doing did virtual carving. Right. If you did a carving project out of wood, you're committed. 
Yeah. You know, you make the wrong cut, you lay it. The same thing happened in graphic design. Mm-hmm. You cut the piece of paper, you lay it on there, whatever it is, and you end up with your result. Now all of a sudden I could do it, and I could do it five different ways in ten minutes. And that was just right. amazing. And even more important, I could I could stretch fonts, I could do all sorts of things. Now, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you got to be careful, you can make it look bad. And right. So I, all of a sudden I was given not only tools, but power tools. Right. You know, so instead of a, a whittling knife, I now have a chainsaw. Mm-hmm. Now that's a little bit gross. Maybe I have a, a sawzall. Right, right. You know, or maybe I have a uh, an exacto saw. Mm-hmm. And I have all that in this one machine. Right. And that was really a revolutionary change. And it's like, oh my gosh. So then it became the situation where on the weekends we would go driving around, we go to use bookstores. And I'd go and see and finally the design design books, uh-huh. font books. Oh, wow. And that was really cool. You'd go in there and you'd see these fonts that were like, oh, this is really cool. And we'd go and scan them with a scanner and use them in our graphics and things like that. And then it became, well, how can I get new fonts for this? Mm-hmm. And there was this, this whole sort of indulgent time of what's going to be going to come out with next. What's right, right. Oh, this font. And, you know, you'd, you'd go buy it. Or you know, you'd get something that would come with a new font, and it was like, oh, this is really cool. Yeah, it, w- it was just amazing. And they were all old fonts that have now been digitized. Mm-hmm. And so what you'd find, and Adobe was one of the major foundries. There was another one called Monotype, and uh, several others. Mm-hmm. And they would all digitize similar fonts, but they would do different metrics on them. Okay. And so one would look better than not, and you'd look at them, and it's like, oh, this is this. And yeah, this yeah. This. So. I remember in that time frame, probably the 85, 86 time frame, there was a group that was a members-only group mm-hmm. based in Boston for typography, high-end mm-hmm. typography. Roger Parker was there. He, okay. he designed the typeface for Time magazine. Oh, no way. At the time. They, they designed their own typeface. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there was a, a company that started up in Cambridge called Bitstream, which was a new foundry, mm-hmm. and it was going to be the digital-only foundry. They right. created new fonts. So there was these, you know, traditional people who made fonts. Herman Zaff, mm-hmm. Zaff Chancery. He had a lot of fonts. He also had, I believe he did Palatino. Okay. He did Optima, I mm-hmm. think, as well. You know, these were people that were contemporaries probably in the 1900s. Okay. So forgive me if I got the date wrong. But when Bitstream formed, it was really under... Matthew Carter was one of their primary designers. Okay. And he created a lot of really cool fonts. You know, and it was people working in Boston. Right. Creating a font may think, you know, you may think that, gee, it's sitting down and drawing 26 letters. Right. Or 36 with the, with the alphabet. Or no, you know, it's, it's roughly about, there's about 250 right. glyphs, if you will. Right. You have the letters, the numbers, the apostrophes, right. all that stuff. Right. And then there's, the upper and the lowercase. Sure. You know, so you have the upper and the lowercase. And then you also have, if you try this sometime on your computer, type the letter A in two lines, and italicize one of them. And you'll notice that the shape is completely different. Right. Uh, lowercase A has, you know, a, a circle around the top that comes down, and then a bulb at the bottom. Mm-hmm. If you italicize that, it almost looks like an O with a tail. Mm-hmm. And those are huge differences that you have to think about and, and do. Yeah. And there's standards there. And what a lot of people do is they will they will italicize a font, or will happen often, 
And rather than it changing form, because you have an italic version of the font, it will just slant the font. Right. And those don't look right. Yeah. And they do impede the understandability mm -hmm. of the text. You know, some people may never perceive this, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I do encourage you to look around and really think about this. Right. Know? Now, you know, let's let's roll back to say if I wanted to typeset a page, yeah, a newspaper in 1975, how yeah. would I do that? Well, I would go and get a um, a rack that would have a way in which I could align little pieces of type. Mm -hmm. I'd have a case next to me. Yeah. It would have an uppercase and a lowercase. And I'd open the drawer for the uppercase, and I'd pick out the letter P. Yeah. And it would look just like the letter P. It would be backwards. Right. And I would put it in this rack. And then I'd go get the A and the U and the L and put it in, the, in from the lowercase. Right. And put it in there. And then I would block that type up. I might go and put spacing if I had a second line, yeah. which would be called letting. Mm -hmm. So I'd add a little bit of space between them so that the characters didn't touch top to bottom. Yeah. And I would put this rack together and I would tighten it up mm -hmm. really tight. Then I could take ink and rub it on with a roller. Sure. And then put a piece of paper on there mm -hmm. and then rub that with a roller and then peel that off and I would have a printed page. That's what typesetting was. Right. Now... What came out after that was something called the linotype. Mm -hmm. The linotype was a machine that would take these molds and all that and basically allow you to take lead, because mm -hmm. it's very malleable, melt it, because it melts fairly easily, mm -hmm. and create a line of type. It would okay. Be a slug of type. It would be like, it would be an inch long by about, a, let's say it was 12 point type, so it would only be 12 point thick. Right. And it would have type on it. You'd be able to read it. Right. Backwards. And it would be, you know, maybe an inch top, and then you would put that into a bracket and do the same thing, but mm -hmm. lines at a time. Okay. So that would make it a lot faster. Yeah. You could type it in to a machine and do that, and it would set that type into that line. Yeah. The previous line uh, was you were manually setting it by hand. Uh-huh. And I have an interesting story. So I, I grew up in a town near, near Buffalo, called Batavia, and there was a local newspaper called Batavia Daily News. And I remember in fourth grade going and getting a tour of this. Uh-huh. And we went through the whole thing, reporters and all that, and we went into this dark, really hot room, and it was where the typesetters were. Okay. And they're working away creating the type and setting the type for the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And there's this pile of stuff they've been done with, with all the slugs or the leftover type. And it was a pile about maybe three feet in diameter, about two feet, three feet tall. And the typesetter, one of them standing there, said, oh, you can, you can take a piece of type with you. And so we all reached down and grabbed these pieces of type. And mm -hmm. it was, you know, a little piece of lead, about one inch square. Right. Type on the lead. Yeah. Backwards. So I pick up mine, and it has my name on it. Oh, no way. Yeah, it was an article that was in that day's paper. Oh, cool. Of something at school, but it had my name. So it was a really wild Your full name, like Paul Parisi? Yeah, Paul Parisi. No way. Yeah. Uh, and it was about me. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was, it was just a weird coincidence. I have it somewhere, uh, this little piece of type. But that's what it was. I mean, you, you took yeah. all these pieces, and then they would line up these lines, and then they would put lead shims in between. Yeah. Leading again. Yeah, yeah. 
and that would the, determine the line spacing. Yeah. And so, you know, they could do all these different things. Mm -hmm. uh, but imagine they had a smelter. I mean, they yeah. were melting lead. There yeah, yeah. Pointed into molds and stuff like that. Wow. So this little machine with this little screen, nine-inch screen, changed all that. Yeah. The and, Apple. Yeah, the Macintosh. Yep. But it wouldn't have been, I mean, honestly, I was always underwhelmed by the Macintosh because of its screen. Yeah. And its resolution was low. It was infinitely better than anything we had before that, but it was very low. And yeah. It was always my question, maybe ignoring the physics of the situation, just saying, why is it so, you know, lower resolution? Mm -hmm. it's like, why can't I have really what you see is what you get? Right. Exactly. And then, you know, and then the battles started where people would come up with new solutions. I remember in probably 1985 or 1986, there was a company that created a monitor called the Genius Monitor. Mm -hmm. And it was a paper white display. So it was a white screen and it was vertical and it was the size of a piece of paper. Hmm. And it was high resolution. So it didn't have 72 DPI, it was like 200 DPI. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh my gosh, I can see this is what the page is going to look like. And it was really cool. Yeah, yeah. And I remember getting one of those and using it. It was so much more efficient and so much better. But it's really, screen resolution has been 72 or 96 DPI pretty much since the Macintosh came out and Windows 1.0 came out. Right. And it wasn't until they introduced the iPhone that Steve Jobs changed that mm -hmm. and made a high-resolution display. But, you know, when it came out, it was like, what took so long? I didn't yeah, really yeah. understand what took so long. Right. Uh, now, when you order a million initial units of an iPhone, you can order a screen that has a higher resolution and get the manufacturing cost. Yeah, think. yeah. So, but, you know, a lot of people still work on 1920 by 1080 screens on their laptops or on their desktops, and that's the HD video screen. Yeah. And because HD video is what everybody, every TV is, yeah. it's easy to get scale and produce those sure. those monitors. Now we have 4K for HD, no yeah, yeah. UHD. And that's that's getting somewhere. Yeah. That's what I use myself. And it's a much better experience. Yeah. You see how much the dots disappear as in the iPhone um, retina displays. <laughs>